0: Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. This is episode number 145, and we are going to be talking about fermentation, fermenting your food for both the health benefits and food preservation. Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast with me, your host, Melissa K. Norris. And this is where we teach families how to grow, preserve, and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom to create a natural, self-sufficient home with or without the full-on homestead. You are in for a very special treat with this episode because we dive full-on into fermentation, of course, talking about all of the different health benefits, exactly what fermentation is, what it does, and how does it work in preserving your food. We talk about the size of vessels that you need and what you actually do need in order to create fermented food and so much more. But before we dive into the good stuff, and there's a whole lot of good stuff getting ready to come at you, I have to let you know about in case for some reason you have not heard about the 2018 Modern Homesteading Summit that is happening. It's starting. It's going down this Sunday, June 10th, 2018 through June 16th. So a full seven days, y'all, of Modern Homesteading everything. You got to make sure you're signed up. You have to register to get the links. So I want you to go to hit pause, Right after I say where to go, if you're not registered yet, I want you to hit pause right now and go and do it before you listen to the rest of this episode because you really need to get your seat. Okay? Are you ready? Go to com slash mhsummit. So we're just abbreviated the modern homesteading part with mhsummit. com slash mhsummit and get yourself registered because the Modern Homesteading Summit is completely free. There's over 27 plus video presentations from 27 plus very experienced homesteaders. And they are all sharing presentations. The majority of them are actually full on tutorials. I mean, like you are getting like mini masterclass lessons right in there for free. So how it works is starting on Sunday, June 10th at 9am Pacific Standard Time, there will be four video presentations that go up and you get to watch them online and you have access to those for 24 hours. So totally for free. Then the next day at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, those four presentations are going to come down and four new ones are going to go up. And we're going to rinse and repeat this for seven days straight. Now, actually, on the last day, the seventh day, which is Saturday, June 16th, there's going to be five presentations. Yeah. So you're going to watch them all for free. They're all available to view for free for 24 hours on their day. And you'll have to be signed up because you're going to get links to the pages to watch them on the day that they're up. Now, when you register, there is an all access pass option. So as I said, you get to watch all of the presentations on their day for free But if you know, like there is no way with my schedule that I can watch four videos every single day for seven days in a row, like it's just not going to happen. Or if you know, if you're like me, I like to watch something when I'm learning something new and I'm going to try something. I want to watch it all the way through once. Like I just want to watch the whole process. And then after I get whatever ingredients I need or maybe, you know, there's resources or things that I need in order to do said project then I like to have that that lesson or that video presentation or if it's in written form, whatever, then I like to have it there right by me as I actually go through it and do it for the first time, step by step. So if that's you, you know you don't have the time or you know you're gonna wanna be able to watch all of these later when you actually implement and start doing them because that's the goal. It's wonderful to learn about all of this stuff and I am such a geek when it comes to learning about new things, but we gotta do it. We gotta put it into practice. So If that sounds like you, you know, you're going to want to access these, then there's an all access pass. So, after you register, you'll have an option to get the all access summit pass. And so, that means that you get over $400 worth in awesome bonuses and coupons. Some of the things are totally free, and some of them you get like a super good deal on. And you get access to all of the presentations for the coming weeks, months, years for the lifetime of the Homesteading Summit. You can go back and watch them as many times as you want, and that's all included in the all-access pass. So there's the totally free version, and then there's the all-access pass. So just to kind of explain how that goes, and if you can't tell, I am super duper excited. Just wait. If Oh my goodness, you guys, if you're not registered, wait until you see all of the names and all of the topics that we're covering. Okay, let's get back to today's episode, which, yes... Today's episode is part of our special series on the podcast with one of our presenters. And that is, you will find out in just a minute as I introduce her in our interview. And if you want to catch any of our past episodes within this series, you can always just go to the website, which is melissaknorris.com. Click on that podcast button, and we've got all of them listed for you in chronological order so that you can listen to them. So specifically, episodes number 139 all the way through today's episode, 145, are part of this special series for the Modern Homesteading Summit with the presenters and the topics. And if you need to hit today's show notes because you want to watch it or you want to get some links You can go to melissaknorris.com slash, I've been saying my name a whole lot this episode, but slash 145, because this is episode number 145. Okay, let's get to it. I am just thrilled to have you on the Pioneering Today podcast, Carolyn, today. I've gotten to know you so well, and I'm just thrilled to introduce you to the listeners if they don't know you already, and just to get the chance to sit and chit-chat with you about some of my favorite subjects, which of course is homesteading, and specifically really what I feel is the heart of the homestead, and that's the kitchen. So welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Melissa. I am so excited to be here and to get to speak with you and to all of your listeners. It's a great topic, and I'm with you. It's one that is near and dear to my heart because, you know, what's more at the heart of life than good food? That just brings everybody together. Not only do you get to nourish your body, but you really nourish your soul. So the heart of the homestead, in my opinion, really is the kitchen.
0: I completely agree. I have to say, especially like my kids, but I think even adults and even myself at different times, oftentimes we have this connotation that if something is healthy, that it's not going to taste good, especially my kids are like, oh, you know, do we have to have whatever (laughs) like if I say healthy, they kind of just, they haven't even tried it before necessarily. They don't even know what it tastes like. They'll kind of do this little nose wrinkle thing and make this face like, oh man, we don't want that stuff. And that is so Not true. Healthy nourishing
1: can
0: definitely taste good. In fact, it should because life is too short to not have good food.
1: Absolutely. And this is a problem that I think that we have from the industrial model of food is that when you take a tomato and you read it to be able to ship it thousands of miles, and then it has to sit on a grocery store shelf, It really just doesn't taste good and just inherently it's lacking something. And then we go and call that health food and there's not really a lot to be excited about in that scenario. It really doesn't taste that great. Now, when you bring that same thing right out of your garden and it is fresh and it is so delicious and then you bring it into your kitchen, well, then the children have a different relationship with that food and, oh, it's exciting to eat it in that case.
0: I agree. And especially with tomatoes, oh my goodness, homegrown, ripened on the vine, heirloom tomatoes. Yeah. There is no comparison to purchasing them at the store flavor profile wise. And also I've noticed that with my own kids and talked about it in some past episodes is when they have a hand too, in actually growing it, tending to the garden, planting it and harvesting it. Cause it is kind of all hands on deck in our family in order to make Everything work, and especially with your family, because I know you have a larger family than we do, but when they yeah. have that hands-on part of it, they really do eat the things that they grow, and they're much more open to trying something new, because I try to grow a new variety or a new plant every year, just kind of keep it okay. fun and introduce new things. They are so much better at being adventurous and trying it and eating it, even if it is a healthy vegetable, that type of thing, than if we purchase it from the store.
1: Absolutely. In our house, we started something years ago where we would give the kids each their own little garden plot. And a lot of times they're starting out with about two square feet when they're just toddlers, but they get to pick out a couple of seed varieties all by themselves from the seed catalog and they get to plant that. And you know, we never say go water your garden or go weed your garden. It's entirely their project. But my husband, who is brilliant, told them, if you want a larger garden next year, your garden has to be taken care of very well this year. And so there's kind of this competition that happens amongst themselves about who can have the best garden going on. And it's so much fun to see because they really get excited about it. But then the food that comes out of the garden is even more exciting when they can take it into the kitchen and cook it themselves. Now we've got kids that are old enough to be cooking on stovetops and different things like that. And what comes out of that? And they get so excited when they can make a whole part of dinner by themselves out of their own garden. It's really fun to see. It is. Now, Carolyn, for those who aren't familiar with your family,
0: please do real quick. How many kids do you and your husband have? What's the size of your family, I should say?
1: Okay, there are nine children in our family at this moment. The oldest is about, let's see, he's 13. And the youngest is just eight months old. So we have a lot of mouths to feed, but we also have a lot of hands to help with weeding and canning.
0: (laughs) And I have to ask, are there any twins in there?
1: There are no twins, they are all singles and they are all ours. None of them are adopted at this point. You do
0: have a lot of hands to help then, yes, and a lot to feed, but I love hearing that they're already developing so many of these skill sets that so many of us didn't, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to grow up in this lifestyle As well. So I grew up that way. You know, we all helped in the garden, helped my mom with canning. My dad taught me to forage for wild mushrooms and that type of thing from basically from the time I could walk and we raised beef cattle. So I feel really fortunate to have grown up that way. But so many people didn't. And they're wanting to learn those skill sets now as adults, which I think is fabulous. But I'm excited, too, to hear that your kids are getting to grow up from the garden up, so to speak, with these skills. And one of the things that I really want to talk about, we've been talking about harvesting and growing food, but getting back to the kitchen and food that tastes good, food that's nourishing. And one of the things you guys do a lot of, and this is a skill that I did not learn growing up, that I really learned about three years ago we started doing in our kitchen, and that is fermentation.
1: Mm -hmm. So Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive in. Yeah, you know, I think as we all get into homesteading, and I grew up not homesteading. (laughs) My mom always had a garden and she always had a few chickens, but it was really more of a hobby for her. But luckily, she was amazing in the kitchen and she really believed in fresh food. So I learned from her the cooking side, but as we get more and more into thinking about homesteading and putting up more of our food growing more and putting it up it's very natural for us to think about canning cuz that's what we've really had hammered into our heads over the last few years is canning 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 and our whole frame of reference for food preservation is based on canning what we believe to be safe what we believe to be good tasting how we believe we should eat and what we can preserve is often based on canning but you know I have learned and fallen in love with fermenting, not only for the healthy eating aspect, which of course we all know that that's amazing. The probiotics, the vitamins, the enzymes are all, you know, such an amazing part of fermented foods, but what we seem to forget in this idea of having healthy fermented foods is that originally it was the preservation technique. And so the simplicity and the efficiency of fermenting as a preservation technique has really hit me over the last few years when we work so hard to can everything, to get all those tomatoes in those jars and to get them canned properly. And of course, you have all this safety fears. And a lot of that just disappears when you decide to go ahead and ferment your food instead and even long fermented as in for preservation.
0: And I still love my canning. So my longtime listeners will know I love canning, but I think it's important that we have Balance in our different forms of food preservation. And we use many different forms here on the homestead from old fashioned root cellaring, dehydrating, just naturally letting the onions and the garlic cure when we harvesting and then braiding them, which is very similar to root cellar too, and storing them using a food dehydrator and, of course, canning as well. But fermenting has been really fun. And I think probably even more so than canning, I would say fermentation is probably more of a lost art. I think it's definitely growing. I think more and more people are curious and wanting to do it. And you're right, because what I love about fermenting is when I have a small amount of produce coming on, and I'm talking small relatively as if, say, I've got 10 cucumbers. Well, that's not really enough to do a full canner load full mm-hmm. port-wise of pickles, right? And so I've really fallen in love with using fermenting for when I've got those smaller amounts of harvest and I don't have enough to do up the entire run of something or perhaps the time because it can be a lot faster. So I'm with you there. The only drawback I have to say that I have with fermenting and perhaps you've got Maybe you're going to surprise me here and you're going to say, <laughs> say something that I could learn from. But, but the only drawback for me is when the majority of the summer vegetable garden is coming on, when I'm doing the fermentation after it's reached its peak flavor and everything like that is then to be able to move it into some type of cold storage We're talking year round eating, you know, for months and months down the road. And I run out of space when it comes to cold storage.
1: Right. Yeah. And that is an issue that a lot of people have. We have this perception that we need to move our ferments into the refrigerator. For most of us in a modern kitchen, it's the refrigerator where we want to put it. Or into a root cellar, and you know, how many of us actually have a root cellar? We cellar a lot of stuff, but we don't actually have a root cellar that stays consistently cool. We're always shoving things in the back unheated room or under some guest bed somewhere. And so having that space can be a challenge. But I think when you think about fermenting the reason we put things in the refrigerator is to slow fermentation way down to almost a stop when you get to that cool. And there's kind of the direct correlation between how hot your environment is and how quickly something ferments. And so you do not have to take it all the way down to refrigerator cool in order to have it store a lot longer. As long as you can get it down to under 50 degrees you really get it to stabilize pretty well for quite a few months. But that is certainly one of the challenges of fermenting. Now, of course, that has the upside to it too, which is that your food is alive. And so your preserved food is actually alive and that's why it's changing in storage. And that has huge health benefits for us. Whereas your canned foods, which don't get me wrong, I love canned foods. I put up over 800 quarts, between 800 and 1200 quarts a year for my family in canned, either water bath canning or pressure canning. So I still love my canning too. But when you put things into a jar and you you can them, you are completely sterilizing it, which is why it can just sit there for a year, two years, and not really change at all. Instead, you have this fermenting, you know, you have all that good bacteria that is actually changing the product. So no, it's not as stable. And yes, you want to drop the temperature if you can. But on the other hand, it's going to actually make you healthier in the long run, rather than just giving you the nutrients that are left after the heat process. So that is a huge upswing. And yeah, you have to balance all that out. And you want to balance that with your other types of preservation so that we all want to have a little bit of that strawberry jam in the dead of winter. And you're not going to get that from fermenting. You're going to get that with canning. But for the core of your food, I'm finding that the fermenting really adds a wonderful benefit to the pantry and to our bodies.
0: I completely agree. In fact, it's kind of funny because I was the one that Fermentation, I knew was an old form of food preservation, but it wasn't something that was done in my family or that I really knew a lot of people that were doing. And so when I first started investigating, of course, you know, old fashioned fermented sauerkraut, of course, mm-hmm. you know, with cabbage is, is really one that people are familiar with. And then kimchi is another one. And my husband loves kimchi. <laughs> and the first couple of times we bought a couple different brands to kind of figure out which flavors that he liked the best. And if he really liked it enough to buy the ingredients and stuff to make it. And he does all of the kimchi himself because he loves things really spicy and really <laughs> hot. Like he will eat just jars of jalapenos, just, you know, canned jalapenos. He'll just uh-huh. eat He'll can up his own jalapenos to last him through the whole winter. And I am like, so not a heat girl. In fact, if I make chili, I'll use like one jalapeno and make sure there's no seeds in it for the <laughs> entire. So I like it very, very mild. So he makes his own kimchi so that he can make it as hot and spicy as he wants. And he has been doing his own kimchi. In fact, he'll usually do up about eight to 10 quarts about every four weeks.
1: Oh, wow. Good for him.
0: Yeah. It's, so it's been really fun because he's kind of developed which flavors he likes and he's tried a few, you know, different flavor combinations and strengths of things because he also likes it to be very authentic where he likes to use the fish paste, shrimp, and, and I don't really care for seafood that much. <laughs> so this is definitely his own thing. But it's been really cool to watch him. And The whole point that I had with this story, sorry, guys, I went on a little bit of a tangent, but we were to just purchase those ingredients or from your garden, depending, because he does it year-round and I don't have fresh cabbage year-round that's growing in our garden. If we were to just purchase those ingredients and let them just sit in the fridge, which would be in cold storage, they are not going to last most of it for four weeks. Same Mm -hmm. with zucchini, like zucchini will start to go bad, even from the garden, you know, seven to 10 days, it's going to start to turn a little bit mushy in the fridge. But I did a whole bunch of garlic dill fermented zucchini pickles last year. And I actually have one jar left, it got put in the very, very back of the fridge, and I kind of forgot about it. (laughs) Still, so I did it in August. At the time of this recording, we're on the very, almost the very last day of May, May thirtieth. They are still Fine. They have a wonderful flavor because they've went for so long in the fridge. But you could never have uncooked zucchini sit in your fridge for almost a year without liquefying, without fermentation process preserving it.
1: Absolutely. The lactic acid really does an amazing job at preserving your food there. And the great thing about it is until it does just turn to mush, which is often a year plus for ferments, the flavors just get more and more. Complex and delicious, and I love that about fermenting that it's always changing, so you kind of have a new product every few months as it sits and infuses and gets even stronger.
0: Yeah, especially with the cucumber pickles. My daughter actually now prefers fermented, and I do almost every type of pickle garlic dill because it's just one of my favorite combinations. Uh-huh. <laughs> but she loves when I make garlic dill fermented pickles especially they have to be about day 14 before we're like okay yeah this is getting to this you know strong enough where we really like it and enjoy it but she actually prefers them now to the regular canned cucumber garlic dill pickles and I still do both but It's been really fun to see, you know, tasting wise and the kids love it because when it's going, it's almost like this science experiment. You know, they see you mixing up the brine and putting it in and then they get to see the bubbles that start to develop as it ferments. And they just think it's a blast. They love to kind of look at it every day and check on it and see the progression as things change. So that's been really fun too. But let's talk a little bit more in depth when it comes to fermentation, the actual process, you know, why it's healthier for us, what's actually going on and what does make it be the preserving action and the shelf stableness provided that we keep it at those cooler temperatures for long term and kind of dig into that a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I like to tell people that when you're fermenting, you're being a farmer, except your garden is a jar or a vessel of some sort, and the plants that you're trying to grow is actually your bacteria. And what you need to do is you need to make sure you're growing the good plants or the good bacteria and suppressing the bad plants or the weeds, which would be the bad bacteria or the molds. And... The way that works is as you take your food and you mix it with salt and you put it into that anaerobic environment of being under liquid, under that brine, your good lactic acid bacteria is going to start multiplying and growing and that lactic acid can handle the salty environment. However, some of the bad bacterias, the ones that cause food spoilage, cannot handle the salt and they won't multiply as quickly. And so when the lactobacillus bacteria start multiplying, they are eating the sugars in your food and the carbohydrates in your food and turning that into lac- lactic acid that lactic acid is then preserving the food in the state that it's in. Another wonderful thing that those lactobacillus bacteria do is they actually hunt down and they kill any bad bacteria that is in there. So once they get strong enough in your vessel, they will hunt down and kill anything that would potentially cause food poisoning if it was a raw product and it was sitting on there. And that's one of the wonderful things about fermenting is that in a lot of ways it's actually safer than even your raw vegetables. And we have this concern about food in jars. I think because of our concern from canning, you know, we're always concerned about botulism. Right. What bad thing might happen in that jar? And one of the things I love about fermenting and the reason why I think it's great for beginner. Food preservers to start with is that you just don't have that concern in fermenting because that lactobacillus bacteria is going to hunt down any bad bacteria that forms. And then things like botulism just can't grow because it's such an acidic environment. So it's very safe, which means that your daughter or your husband can experiment with their recipes and decide how much garlic do you like in those pickles or how much chili do you like? And you're always being told with canning, be careful, follow the recipes exactly because you don't wanna throw off the pH or you don't wanna do something that's gonna endanger your family. And you just don't have that concern with fermenting, which is wonderful. In fact, one of the USDA microbiologists actually, and let's see, I don't have the quote sitting in front of me, but he said that there has never been a documented case of food poisoning from properly fermented vegetables which, I mean, wow, that's really big. If you can have something that is that safe that there has never been a documented case. Now, of course, the keyword there is properly fermented. And you do wanna make sure that you're using the salt in the right ratios and letting that lactobacillus bacteria proliferate to a point where it can hunt down anything bad. But that's all really simple to do when it comes to the kitchen actual work. So those are one of the wonderful benefits of fermenting. That is great. And I didn't actually, I I had
0: not heard that quote before. So guys, I will try and hunt up the original source of that. And then in the full blog post that accompanies every episode, we'll link to that and have that in there. If you're curious, because now I'm really, I'm, that is fascinating. I had not heard that. I love that though, because yes, with canning, I am a huge advocate on canning safety and understanding botulism grows in anaerobic environments. And with having those pH levels 4.6 or lower on the pH Mm -hmm. scale, in order to be safe to water bath can, anything higher than that needs to be pressure canned. And so I think it's really important that we know those rules. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that sometimes we can have, we do kind of have that fear, which is really sad, because there's so many things that if we only knew that was done to food that we buy from the store. (laughs)
1: Yes, (laughs)
0: that would be an entire another episode, I'm afraid. But yeah, and so I think it's really good to give people confidence. But also, you know, just so that you know, I think it's important that we know what what dangers there may be, especially with canning, and that we understand the science and why those rules, so to speak, are in place. But the other really cool thing about the fermented food, one, you know, food safety and preservation wise is really fabulous too. But the health benefits, because gut health is a really big thing. And I've talked a lot in past episodes, you know, about healing and a lot of my healing was done specifically by the foods I ate or maybe more importantly, the foods I wasn't eating. (laughs) But you've got this, if you suffer from gut health, or you're trying to heal your gut, or you've had, you know, kind of gut damage and that kind of done to the floor, you've got two really cool things happening with the fermentation. And one is like you said, we've got this natural bacteria. And so many times when we hear the word bacteria, we immediately think bad bacteria, but we Good bacteria, especially in our gut. It's that good bacteria. It's when that balance gets off that things get really bad. And so you are helping to colonize and increase the colony of the good bacteria because you've got the lactobacillus bacteria working within those foods that we're fermenting and then we're eating them. Plus you, it's a raw food. So you're getting all of the, you know, micronutrients and the macronutrients that are in there. We're not cooking any of them out because it's still raw. But the other really cool thing that happens is especially when you have some gut damage, like I've had in the past is a lot of times if you've got leaky gut, so your gut lining has been permeated and different things like that is If your gut lining is damaged, you may be eating very healthy food, but you're not always able to absorb it and to digest it and then use it in your body. So the cool thing about fermented is it's actually going through that lactoblite is pre-digesting it basically so that Mm -hmm. it's easier for you to digest and it's easier for your body to get the nutrients that are in it and put it into your body and to actually absorb it and work. So there's so many really cool things about fermenting from our health to, you know, a homestead preservation wise too.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one of them that I've touched on just lightly already, but I really want to bring out is as we start looking at fermenting, not only as a health food, which it's like you just said, absolutely amazing at that has got to be one of the top ways to get your body back into balance and back into alignment is just by increasing your fermented food intake. But also, as we look at it for preservation, there's an energy efficiency that happens with fermenting. And that is one of the top benefits for me, is that not only do we not have to buy in as much electricity or propane or whatever it is that you would be using to maybe dehydrate or canned foods but your own energy is also saved a lot you know it's very energy efficient when it comes to the actual preservation process and to the actual eating process it really helps your body to have more energy freed up for other things partly because of the enzyme count in fermented food, which is really high. It just really gives you those good digestive enzymes. And you always hear that recommendation in science that after, gosh, I think it's after 30 years old, we should all be taking digestive enzymes. Well, this is the way that people used to do it before we had nice little papaya enzyme tablets (laughs) that you could buy off of Amazon and have shipped to your door. You know, you just eat it in your food. And fermented food is super high in those enzymes. So that helps to not only digest the fermented food that you're eating, but every other food that you're eating alongside of it. So that is a huge thing. But then you get that benefit also when you're preserving of saving your more, you know, your labor energies, because it can be so easy to ferment foods and it's so quick and simple. And that's one thing that I just love about it You know, obviously we talked about us having a large family. We have a lot of food we have to preserve for our long, cold winters, a lot of mouths to be able to feed. We don't have a lot of time to do it in always. There's a lot of things to do around the homestead. I love it that with fermented food, you can literally just drop it into its brine, cover it up, and you're good to go. You're done. The tomatoes that I do that way take about I don't know, maybe 30 seconds to fill a jar and put a cap on and I'm done for the year. I absolutely love that part of it. Okay, so now I have
0: to ask, and this is totally my own curiosity, <laughs> typically for your, especially because you have a larger size family. So what is the size of vessels? Are you doing it in gallon mason jars, half gallon mason? Are you doing it in crocks, What's your fermenting vessels usually then?
1: So let's just say everything that I have available. (laughs) I put everything I can everywhere I can. We do have some really large crocs, some eight-gallon crocs. I've got five-gallon croc. I've got a couple one- and two-gallon crocs. But honestly they're heavy and they're a lot harder to move around and to use. And so I find myself routinely reaching for the jars. And yes, the gallon jars are one of my favorites, but the half gallons are pretty high up on my list too. And I think that's because we have a milk animal in the house. We have a milk cow and we really like those half gallon jars for milk. And so we seem to always have extra of those laying around. So it's really easy to grab those and use those. Gotcha.
0: I actually prefer that the half gallon too. I think too, because a lot of times it seems to be, that's just how much produce I've got coming on. Cause I'll kind of go out and harvest every two or three days. And it tends to be, that's how much when we're in full harvest mode, you know, I'll get a gathering and then I'll just make up and throw it in there. And then it's also the half gallon is small enough that I can easily put that into the fridge, where if I get a whole bunch of the gallons, it can be a little bit harder to get those in. And then I do have a crock too, that we do the kimchi and the sauerkraut in, but I have found with my own fermenting that, and I don't have a airlock system with the crock. And so I found Mm -hmm. that using the airlock systems on the mason jars, the half gallons, and even sometimes the quarts, I really prefer that because I haven't had any issue with having an overgrowth of mold or having, you know, getting the balance. I haven't had any problems at all. So I do like to have. The mason jars where I can just easily put the airlock systems on top.
1: Yeah, you know, and I feel with those half-gallon jars, their footprint in the refrigerator or on the counter really isn't much bigger than a quart size jar. Yeah. Um, but you get that height that you can also, often take advantage of space-wise. You know, the refrigerator, you have that height probably on a shelf, but you don't really want to take up that whole footprint with a gallon-sized jar. It just gets a little too big.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. Okay. Well, I was curious because when I have not, I don't have any eight gallon crocks, but I was just kind of curious when you were saying you did a year's worth of, of certain things. I'm like, well, how big a jar does she got going on? Oh, right.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. And you know, that's the beauty of it is because you've got that brine and you can make a big batch of brine and keep it in your fridge. or on the counter and just use it as produce comes in. I'll tend to make a couple gallons at a time and be able to just use it for a few days. And that just makes it so easy because then you can just do a jar at a time. Like you're saying, you know, you go out every couple days to the garden, get your whatever you have extra and bring that in. And then you can just pop it right into a jar one at a time without having to invest this whole amount of time to fill seven jars so that you have a canner batch full and then actually go through the canning process. So to me, that is one of the main benefits of fermenting is that It's just easy and it's fast and then it's healthy for you on top of that. I mean, how much better could you get?
0: I agree. And it's really fun to play with the flavors. Because you do have the freedom to be a lot more adventurous in what you can put in, especially when it comes to pickles and that type of thing. And so we've had a lot of fun just trying out different flavors and how much garlic, which we kind of tend to be that family that thinks you can never really have too much (laughs) (laughs) pickle.
1: We're that kind of family too. So we love that garlic. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. So we'll, you know, we really will put a whole lot in,
0: but even using ginger and just some of the different herbs and trying out some different combinations that I wouldn't do when I'm canning. One for safety wise, but two, typically when I'm canning, I do enough that I've got a full run, so you know it can be anywhere from seven to eight jars. And you don't want to experiment on that many in case it right.
1: doesn't you don't like
0: it. <laughs> so that's kind of the beauty, too. You can really have fun in those smaller batches getting some different flavor combinations down.
1: Yeah, that's right. And one thing that is really fun about fermenting and that I really like is that you can depend very much on your senses when you're fermenting. And I know, gosh, years ago, the first time I made sauerkraut, that was my first project too, was that stuff sat in the fridge for probably a year and a half, and I could not work up the courage to try (gasps) that. I was so scared of it. And finally... I had a friend who wanted to give me hers that had the same situation. She had made it. It looked great. It smelled great, but she was scared to death to eat the stuff and she gave it to me. And I don't know why, but I felt better about eating her stuff that I was scared of rather than eating mine. So, you know, that was long before I realized, and I knew what I know now about fermenting, which is that you get to use your senses to tell if it's good or if it has gone bad. And, You know, this is another thing. We've all been educated about canning, and you know that you cannot smell botulism and you probably can't see botulism. Right. And so you can't just say, wow, that looks bad or that smells bad, so I shouldn't eat it. So you have to always be concerned that maybe I can't smell something. But in fermenting, If it goes bad, you are gonna know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is bad and nobody's gonna be able to pay you to eat it. So, the test that we always run to see if a ferment is good or if it's gone bad, and occasionally you will have a batch that goes a little bit bad. Like you were saying, using the airlocks can help to keep that percentage down pretty low, but I don't usually use airlocks, and I've only had a few jars out of the many, many, many jars that I have fermented ever go bad. But the test that you use for that is first just to smell it does it smell okay? And when you're brand new to fermenting, that's always kind of the thousand dollar question. Does it smell okay? I don't know. It smells kind of funny. Is that okay? Or is it not okay? It smells different than fresh food. And what I let people know is that if you have to ask yourself, is that okay? Or is it not okay? Then it's fine. Because You will not be asking yourself any questions at all if you open something up that has gone bad. You will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is very bad and you will not eat it. So the second thing that we look for to know that if your ferment is good is you look at it and you can tell by if if there is mold growth on it, you look at the colors of mold And usually we say that white mold is okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's either actually the yeast that is naturally on the top of it, or it could be a basic penicillin type mold, which is non-toxic at all. So you just scrape that off the top and you're good to go. However, if you see colors like green or black or pink or any other strange color like that, you'll know that that has gone off and you probably just want to put that out in the compost pile. And of course the last, if it passes the first, it smells good. It looks good. Then you taste it and you see if you like it or not, because if it's past the first two tests of smell and sight, then you'll know it's safe to eat. And it really comes down to a matter of whether or not you like the flavor at that point.
0: Yeah. And I tend to like, and you can ferment things that aren't pickled, but we tend to love pickles here. I especially love pickles and so does my daughter. So we tend to do a lot of pickling. And for me, it's a slightly different flavor profile. If you're only used to vinegar type canned pickles or refrigerator pickles where you're using a lot of vinegar, it's a little bit different flavor. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really good. So if you're, you know if you've never had a fermented pickle before and you try it, it's a little bit different flavor. But I found for us, and I think it's because here in the Pacific Northwest, we tend to be a little bit cooler. And I have to let my pickles go till at least day 14 before I think that they're strong enough flavor-wise.
1: Okay. Yeah. And not only does the coolness of your area affect it, but each area is going to have a little bit different strain of lactobacillus bacteria. And so you're actually going to get different flavors. I think there's something like over 150 different strains of lactobacillus bacteria. Oh, wow. It's a huge amount of different strains. And so the bacteria that you have at your home is going to be very different than the ones that I've got in my part of the country in my home. And so you get this very localized food aspect where your pickles will never taste like my pickles, even if we're using the same ingredients. And that makes it kind of fun in some ways, too.
0: Yeah, it does. Kind of similar to sourdough because different parts of the country are kind of renowned for different flavor profiles on their sourdough. Like you have Alaska sourdough, San Francisco sourdough.
1: Absolutely. And all
0: that. And it's all due to the bacteria. So that's really fascinating. I did not realize there was that many strains though, like 150. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it is a lot. Now you're talking about the different flavors associated versus food that we're used to, right? We're not used to eating very many fermented foods in our culture. And Oh, I remember the first time I tried some kombucha. I had no idea what it was. I went to a grocery store and somebody randomly, I don't think I knew the person, just said, have you ever tried this? It's really good. And for some reason, I went ahead and bought it. I thought, well, you know, I'm into health food, so that looks good. I took a sip of it without even knowing that it was fermented. And, oh, I quickly put the lid back on and stuck it in my refrigerator and thought, there's something wrong with that. I think (laughs) that must have gone bad. Well, I think it was a hot summer, and a couple days later I got into it again, and I poured myself a few sips, and I think I got through like three or four sips the next time. I thought, that is so odd. I just don't know about that. But you know, by the next day, my body was craving that food. It was craving the kombucha, and I found myself quickly drinking the rest of that bottle and getting myself more, and then you know, a few years later I was making it myself. And there is an element of fermented foods that you have to adjust to the flavor. But I think that, on some sort of a very base and maybe primal level, our body recognizes it as a health food it's gonna recognize that a lot more than something that comes out of a bag that says health food and it's some industrialized made food product. Your body tastes that fermenting and it gets a little bit of that health benefit and somewhere it goes, wow, I actually really like this. So while it takes your tongue a while to adjust to the new flavors, your body really starts to recognize it and crave that food. And I know that happens in my house The two year olds in my house are probably the biggest consumers of sauerkraut in the entire house. Wow. Um, And I think their body, their tongues just aren't as jaded as the rest of ours. You know, we're so used to all the sugar laden and Mm -hmm. everything kind of has a bland, homogenized flavor that, you know, they're not so used to that. They've been eating out of the garden, they've been eating real food their whole lives. And they taste that sauerkraut and they're good to go. They want to eat a ton of it at a time. And I have to go, no, let's back off a little bit. We need to save some of that for tomorrow too. But it's amazing what your body will tell you when you start eating it and your tongue can get past that flavor shock. Yeah. And I
0: have to agree because like I said, we had never, you know, kimchi wasn't anything that my husband grew up with or I grew up with either. And he made it the first time and he's like, Oh, this is pretty good. You know, he'd had it a couple different times at some different restaurants and that type of thing and enjoyed it. And so he's like, oh, "You know, I'm going to see about making this. And then I started getting into fermenting and he's like, okay, well I'm going to do this. And we kind of had his and hers batches of ferments going on for a while, but he's the same way. Now, if he gets down to like that last jar, he just does not run out. He eats it every single day. And if he misses a <laughs> day, It's like, it's a thing. And so I think you're right. I think it's something that our body starts to recognize. Yeah, and you almost crave it. I think your Mm -hmm. body knows that it's good and it's letting you know, like, we need more of this. And it's also really interesting because I didn't turn as health conscientious and eating real food and really, I hate to say a stickler because I try not to get too dogmatic because that's not healthy either. But with my kids, my son grew up when he was little or having more processed food, definitely than we do now. But then but he was four when my daughter was born. And when my daughter was born was really when I had my journey and I had a lot of health issues and really started turning to real food and whole foods and kicking all the processed stuff out of our cupboards. And so she grew up having mainly whole foods and fermented and stuff. And so she just loves it. I think it's part of that palate development where he doesn't embrace it as much as she does.
1: Yeah, and that's just kind of typical of most of us, right? We've all been kind of raised with more industrialized food, and we're not ready for those bolder flavors of real food, and it kind of takes us a while to adjust to that. I have a few tricks that I like to give people when they say, I want to get more foods into my family's diet, but they just don't like the flavor of fermented foods." And one of the things that I like to tell people is to start with something that's sweet. Start with a vegetable that's sweet. And the top one for me and that I've found people respond to really well is carrots. If you can make a ginger carrot ferment or a garlic carrot ferment or something with that carrot, the sweetness of those good carrots can kind of counteract the acidity that comes from the fermented food. And that can get people into that state where their bodies are craving it. It gives them a chance to get past their tongue and get that fermented food all the way down into their gut where their body can just say, hey, I'd like some more of that. And that really helps the mental process of moving beyond this. I just don't like fermented food idea.
0: Oh, that's a great tip. I love that. Yeah. To start with something sweet. If the tanginess or there's too much bite to some of the other stuff,
1: that's a perfect tip. And another one that I like to tell people is that you don't have to ferment things as long as somebody would that really likes the tanginess, especially if you're starting f- people who don't believe that they like fermented foods, or you think that they're going to take a while adjusting to the flavor, just fermented it until you just barely see the bubbles and then eat it. And it won't be so strongly developed of a sour flavor. And that'll help a lot of people just kind of grow into it. And then you can slowly start fermenting it longer and longer to really get all of the health benefits. But you know, starting lightly can really help people move into that area.
0: Oh, that is great. You have just been a wealth of information today, Carolyn. I've so enjoyed our conversation and getting to talk about all of this. And I've learned quite a few things too, which is always fun. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and time with us.
1: Melissa, it's been so great to get to spend a few minutes with you and your listeners and uh, been really fun to get to hang out.
0: Yeah. So tell everybody who is listening, if they're not familiar with your guys's Website and what you do. Let everybody know where they can find you and learn a little bit more about you guys.
1: Yeah, so we're over at homesteadingfamily.com and the same on Facebook, Instagram, and we have a very active YouTube channel. So come check us out there. We talk about all sorts of good homesteading projects. A lot of them are in the kitchen, some of them are out in the garden, and some are out with the animals.
0: Thank you so much. I'm going to put you on the spot because this is going to be on air. We're not going to edit it out Come <laughs> <get> back on.
1: <laughs> I would love to. That would be wonderful. I'd love to do that.
0: Okay. Fabulous. So guys, if you've got more questions for Carolyn or some topics that you would love to hear her share more about or teach more about with us, let us know either in the reviews on iTunes, or you can go straight to the blog post in the comment section under there. Let us know so that we can plan out some future episodes. So thank you, Carolyn, so much for coming on today. Thank you. All righty, guys. We are now on to our portion of the verse of the week. And if you've been listening to the podcast for any amount of time or any amount of episodes, you know that this is how we end pretty much all of our episodes. And at the beginning of this year, I started to go back and read the Bible from the very beginning again, which I have actually read the entire Bible in chronological order a couple of times. But this year, I'm doing it with a journal, with a Bible journal, and it's been really neat to go back and look at each day and the notes and which verses stood out to me. And what I'm sharing with you today is we are in Joshua chapter one and it's verse six through seven. And this is the amplified translation of the Bible. Be strong, confident and of good courage for you shall cause this people to inherit the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them only you be strong and very courageous that you may do according to all the law Which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And as I was reading that, the thoughts that I had and what I wrote down, I'm just going to read it straight to you from my journal notes. We must be stronger and more courageous in our walk with God and holding on to our faith than we are with our daily and worldly battles. And doings of everyday life. As I've been, as I'm the host of the Modern Homesteading Summit that's coming up, and I've been working on it for months, you guys, I'm very excited. But there was a lot to it in putting together an event like this, and it's really stretched me. I've never done anything of this magnitude really before, and all by myself. And As things were coming up to it, there's a lot of little things. There's a lot of technical things that need to be done and just a lot of busy work. There's all of the video editing and getting everything up on the pages and the hosting and just a lot of details that I won't bore you with that happen on the tech side. But I didn't realize how immersed I had become in getting all of this done and on time and just all of the prep and stuff that went with it. And about a week ago, I had some stuff in my personal life and I won't share the details because the details really don't matter and it involves somebody else. So it's not really, I try to always make sure that I don't share any details um, for somebody else. It's fine if I share my own stuff, right? But anyways, just within my personal relationships, there was a really rocky, really rocky couple of days and a really hard spot in a personal relationship. And... That brought me back to my knees, to the Bible, to some really hard intercessory prayer and just pouring my heart out to the Lord and a whole bunch of stuff that went on both with me personally and just prayer-wise. And I realized that it was really the enemy that was coming in. And because I hadn't recognized it as the enemy and I hadn't taken... I mean, our first response should always be prayer, especially as coming from a Christian, which is where I am. I mean, our first response, anytime anything starts to go, you know, bad or we start to feel, you know, something's not going on, it should be to take it to prayer, right? To cover it immediately. But that's not always my first response. In fact, it's rarely my first response. I wish I wish that it was my immediate first response, that just anytime something happened, I immediately started to pray about it. And I'm working on that. But I realized that that's what this was, that it was a very big attack. And the only way to combat that was to just take it to prayer and take it to the Lord. And which I did. And as I was praying, it was a couple of days of praying, but it was amazing to see because of the grace of God and because he does hear our prayers because of the sacrifice that Jesus made and covered our sins, and that he's sitting at the right hand of God to see the Lord work. It's just amazing. So I'm sharing this with you with that verse to tell you that no matter what we have going on, because we're all busy and we've all got different hardships and just different things going on in our lives that maybe nobody else even knows about. But to just be strong and to be courageous and to make sure that you are grounding yourself in the Lord and that your relationship with him is not sliding, even without us realizing it. Because I don't think a lot of times we're going to make a conscious decision that says, I'm going to let you know, my relationship with the Lord slide. It just kind of sneaks in there. So I'm just giving you that, I guess, as a word of inspiration and as a word of caution that you could learn from what I've learned these past few weeks. So I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. This was when I just had so much fun with this episode, and I am so excited for this Modern Homesteading Summit because it is just amazing. I, of course, have got to watch all of the lessons because I had to do the video work on them. And you guys, I have learned so much. I cannot wait for you to learn and to see all of the wonderful presenters and their information. So go get yourself registered if you haven't. One last time, melissaknorris.com slash H Summit, and I will see you there.